0: This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light.
1: Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good.
2: wholesome, and at the same time costs
0: less. Crop a cake mixing, make perfect cakes. Although the rest was to
1: intended good. to provide sufficient food to sustain five men for one. Day. You're
2: listening to the feast. where history is served with a dash of hot sauce or a squeeze of lemon. Where we look behind those dates and names everyone knows to the meals that made them. I'm your host, Laura Carlson. And each week, we're bringing you stories of how revolutions can start at lunch counters, or how empires can end over dessert. Some of the biggest moments in history happened over dinner, and we're giving you a seat at the table. This is a podcast where meals make history. Now, before we start with today's show, we have a quick favor to ask you. Don't worry. It's an easy one. We want to know more about our great listeners what shows you liked, what shows you didn't, and what you'd like to see more of here at The Feast. We've put up a survey on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. And if you have a chance, please consider filling it out. It shouldn't take any more than five minutes, and it'll really help us improve the show. The survey is entirely anonymous. But if you leave us your email address, we'll sign you up for our newsletter, and you'll be entered to win a free Feast t-shirt. Thanks for helping us make the Feast better. Remember, you can take the survey anytime just by visiting thefeastpodcast.org and clicking on the link to our listener survey from the homepage. Thanks again. Now on with today's episode. The man's name was peppercorn, or in his native German, pfefferkorn, Father Ignaz pfefferkorn, actually. Now, there's no reason that a man with a name like peppercorn would be interested in food, but it helps, doesn't it? And as fate would have it, Father Peppercorn, or pfefferkorn, did like food, or at least he liked to write about it, Maybe what it came down to is that he simply had more than enough time to write about it. You see, sitting in a Spanish jail for ten years, you really had time to do almost anything. And as prisons went, Pfeffercorns wasn't so bad. For one thing, the building hadn't started out as a prison. That helped. It had been a hospice or a rest stop for travelers for most of its life sitting on the port on the western tip of spain in the town of cadiz it was a launching point for european travels across the atlantic to the americas this was the spot columbus had left from almost 300 years before Pfeffercorn himself had left for the americas from here almost 15 years earlier back in 1754 but when the king of spain had turned against the jesuits a decade later suspecting them of sneaking away with the riches of the americas he expelled them all from his territories, imprisoning many of them in hospice-turned jails, like the one peppercorn now sat in. When he had first been assigned his mission to New Spain, he had been an eager young Jesuit priest. And at the time, being a Jesuit was a little like being in the Peace Corps. It was a chance to see the world. In the 18th century, the Jesuit order was all about conversion. Sending brothers to set up missions and preach Christianity in Africa, Asia, and, of course, the Americas. And Pfefferkorn, a Jesuit since he had been 16 or 17 years old, had been keen to help. He had been assigned a remote region, the very northwestern tip of the Spanish Empire in the Americas, an area known as the Pimeria Alta, or the Upper Piman Lands corn's job was to revive the mission project there, started almost 70 years earlier, instructing the people known as the Pima in the ways of Christianity and life under Spanish rule. Of course, the Pima weren't the Pima at all. At least, that's not what they called themselves. Pima had simply been the first word the Spanish had heard them say, or at least that's how the story went. No, they were the Tohono O'odham, or the Akima O'odham, the Seris, the Yaquis, or the Pipash. But to the Spanish, they were just the Pima. Sometimes even the Papago, or bean eaters, a word learned from rival tribes to refer to the Pima's love of the native tepary beans, a drought resistant plant which could survive the low water and harsh summers of the Sonoran Desert the heartland of the Pimeria Alta, and the destination of Father Peppercorn. Now, the Sonoran Desert is not a forgiving place to newcomers. Covering an area around 100,000 square miles, it's been known to get as little as three inches of rain per year. Temperatures in June and July can easily reach upwards of 120 degrees Fahrenheit. So don't be fooled. The Sonoran Desert can be deadly, if you don't know where to look for food and water. But to the trained eye, food is everywhere. The desert is home to over 2,000 native species of plants, including the saguaro, that giant of cactus, which rises out of the ground to, in some cases, reach heights of over 45 feet. It's also home to the agave, also known as the century plant, the base of tequila and mezcal. Of course, it's also home to chilies, squash, corn, beans, and sunflowers, edible plants that fed hundreds of generations of people in the Sonoran Desert. Archaeological evidence suggests people have been cooking in the area since 2000 BC. By 1200 BC, intricate canals were already siphoning nearby rivers to water cornfields. But the true masters of the desert canal were the Hohokam a mysterious people who lived in what is today central and southern Arizona. The canals that still flow through the heart of Phoenix are based on the remains of their elaborate canal system, built centuries ago and abandoned for reasons historians still don't quite fully understand. The Hohokam grew corn, squash, beans, and a variety of native cotton on a scale that the southwest wouldn't see again until the arrival of the Spanish. By the time Pfeffercorn and his fellow Jesuits reached what is today southern Arizona in the mid-1750s, the Sonoran Desert and its peoples had been under Spanish rule for over 70 years. A collection of missions and forts dotted the landscape, protecting Spanish interests. The early missions in particular were pretty simple affairs, usually not much more than a small chapel and a house for the priest, and of course a garden. You see, The Jesuits hadn't come to the Sonoran Desert empty-handed. After all, what do most folks miss when they head out on a big trip? Food from home. Maybe it's your mom's lasagna, your favorite local craft brew, maybe that sandwich from the deli down the street. It's so often food that reminds us how far we are from home. And back in the 17th and 18th centuries, the Jesuits had come prepared. After all, This wasn't going to be just a two-week vacation. Most of them were expecting to be gone for 10, maybe even 20 years, maybe longer. And when it could take up to a year to travel from Spain to the Sonoran Desert, there wouldn't be any FedExing a care package from home. If they wanted the food they knew and loved from Europe, they'd have to bring it with them. Today, ethnobotanists, archaeologists, and historians are searching for evidence of the plants and animals these European Jesuits introduced to the Sonoran Desert during the 16th and 1700s.
0: My name is Jesus Garcia. I'm an education specialist at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum in Tucson, Arizona. I am an ecologist by training, but in the last 10 years, I've been uh, practicing colonial agriculture and ethnobotany of the Sonoran Desert, So it's a way of connecting uh, the people to the environment, uh, particularly through the concept of growing food.
2: Jesus' work explores the plants introduced by Jesuits like Father Pfeffercorn to the Sonoran Desert. Of course, Pfeffercorn wasn't the first Jesuit to come bearing fruit to Sonora. His predecessor, Father Eusebio Kino, came to the area in the late 1600s, establishing around 20 missions throughout what is today Sonora and southern Arizona. Jesus' project, known as the Kino Heritage Fruit Trees Project, is named for Father Kino, who we might consider the Johnny Apples eat of Sonora. Well, that is if we literally switch apples for oranges. Beginning in 2004, the project aimed to see if any of the trees these Jesuits brought with them had survived.
0: Where are the fruit trees that those Jesuits brought? Are they still here? Here's a botanist and a historian and archaeologist trying to come up with an answer. Where are those gardens that every mission had throughout the region? They all describe gardens and cattle and a whole new European way of life in this area. So you, when you're wondering, okay, let's be realistic. Where are these specimens? Where are these trees? Are they still alive? Are they here?
2: But for Jesus, the question was a little closer to home. I
0: brought a perspective that none of them had. I grew up in Magdalena Sonora, harvesting and playing in the actual colonial orchards of Magdalena Sonora, so there were a few questions that came up. So are these trees still alive? Are there any evidence of individuals still alive? And I could answer the question right away in the sense that I knew that these trees are not propagated by seed, they're propagated by cuttings, which means they're clones which means these trees are very, very old. Even though we may have new specimens growing in different places, but the germplasm of these trees is still around. Simply, if we find the oldest possible tree that we can find in the region, whether it's in the Arizona side or in the Sonora side, we can locate these trees that puts us back, you know, a couple of hundred years easily. And indeed, once we started looking around, uh, visiting historic places from missions to old homesteads, including people's backyards, we found trees and in individuals that were at least 80 years old, 100 years old. That's all I needed to know. To find out that these trees, uh, that tells us that that tree came from another cutting from another 30, 40 year old tree. So it puts us into the 150 year mark easily. So whatever fruits we're eating right now, the flavor, those textures are the same flavors that the Jesuits were tasting 200 years ago.
2: But just who were these Jesuits bringing the plants? Although they may have been living and working in what was called New Spain, quinoa and peppercorn weren't exactly Spaniards. Turns out the foodways of southern Arizona and Sonora may have a larger culinary tie to Germany or Italy than we thought
0: the influence that we got here to begin with by German Jesuits. They are the pioneers of this this region when it comes to European contact, and including Father Kino himself, even though he was not German ethnically, but he was Italian, living in northern Italy, which is the area of Trento, very close to Austria, and most of his education was really done in German. So, he has a very Germanic influence when he came in, speaking German and Italian, and then later Spanish when he came to Spain. So, that goes to show you that, you know, when we talk about, oh, this area, you know, was conquered by the Spanish, well, yeah, the Spanish, but really the first intellectual and influential people in this region were
1: German.
2: <laughs> With a background in agriculture and more than a passing interest in botany, Kino successfully introduced fruit trees, onions, cabbage, garbanzo beans, lentils, and more to the gardens of the Southwest. Later Jesuits, like pfeffercorn, added culinary herbs such as caraway, cumin, fennel, parsley, and rosemary to Sonoran larders. What had started as just a few culinary mementos had evolved by the 1750s to feature pantries that could rival any in Europe. But the mission gardens weren't just hobbies to pass the time for the Jesuits. They often were the only way a local padre could reliably feed himself. European seeds and cultivars also extended the native growing season of the southwest. The beans, squash, and corn grown locally were largely summer crops, sown in the late spring and harvested in the fall. The newly introduced Spanish wheat, not to mention barley, onions, and lettuce, all could be sown in the winter, ensuring a reliable source of food year-round.
0: European crops basically marked a an important addition to the Native American diet because the Tohono O'odham did not have winter crops prior to European contact. Their Balkan crops were corn, squash, and beans, the three sisters, and maybe cotton and gourds and and a few other wild plants uh, that they harvested mostly depending on the summer rains. Many described the winter as a time of hunger or the time to depend on store goods. So they really had no crops in the winter.
2: A steady supply of food was a big promise to those living in the Sonoran Desert. Whether it was the Spanish soldiers also looking for tastes of home, or the local indigenous communities, more than interested in the promise of a year-round harvest. To learn more about the Jesuits' mission gardens and what they were growing, we spoke to Sonia Norman, the public programs coordinator at the Arizona Sonoran Desert Museum, located just outside of Tucson. The other
1: thing that the missions had mission gardens to feed not only the the Padres, but then they would also be growing food for the soldiers, and often the soldiers would be more interested in some of these um, foods from the homeland if they were Spaniards. Um, and then the native peoples would—that was sort of one of the enticements for bringing the natives into the religion. Was there were new foods and foods that were uh, could be grown at times where maybe some of their traditional foods could not be grown. For example, in this area, uh, April and May were times of, and early June were times of. Um, especially May and June are times when there just wasn't much that was around and people would often become very hungry they' use up their resources and they just kind of they'd be waiting for the saguaro to ripen and it was it was like the time of great hunger and then the Spaniards came and they had these other you know this whole new suite of foods and so that complemented what the native people here had been surviving on and so um as I said that was an enticement for The natives to oh, you know, these guys, well, you know, whatever they talk about this God that we're supposed to be praising, but the really great thing here is that we've got some more food. I mean, I think for different people, they were more attracted to one versus the other enticement.
2: Because we can't forget why the Jesuits were there in the first place, to preach Christianity. And in the Catholic faith, two foods were absolutely essential for the faith, bread and wine. Now, the desert may not be the first place you think of when you imagine rows of gleaming grapevines or amber fields of grain. But the wheat Kino helped to introduce, today known as White Sonoran Wheat or Flor de America, flourished in the Sonoran Desert. Planted in Kino's very first year in the area, Sonoran Wheat proved to be a hardy product, capable of thriving on comparatively little water. Grown during the wet and mild winters, rather than through the hot, dry summers, Sonoran wheat soon was being used for far more than just communion waivers. By the late 1700s, around the time of pfeffercorn, the southwest annually was producing over 700,000 pounds of grain. Wheat has a complicated history in the Sonoran desert. We asked Jesus to explain a bit more about the kind of wheat the Europeans brought, and how it was incorporated into desert foodways.
0: We have two heirloom varieties that we're growing here that have been rescued from, from history. One of them is called the Sonoran white wheat. It's a tough wheat, excellent for large tortillas. And then we have the Pima Club, which is another variety that also does very well here. Um, and when you look at the history of southern Arizona and Sonora, uh, I still remember wheat meals all around. Uh, wheat uh, has been a very, very important crop um, until recently because people were growing their own crops, and wheat and barley and corn and all those things have been a staple. But we've essentially moved away from that lifestyle, and many other grains that really made uh, you know a difference uh, in many cases negative impacts to this point, but we're not gonna get into that in terms of the um, you know the fry bread and a lot of these wheat. Um, processed foods that is really creating a big problem for Native Americans nowadays. But wheat was and still is a very important crop that came, turning this into a a multi multi crop environment that enhanced the entire area. And of course, for the Europeans and Creoles and mestizos who were already living here or increasing in population, that became our staple food.
2: And what about the wine? Apparently, Spaniards missed their grape juice quite a bit while in the Americas. Records show the earliest grapevines were brought over as early as the mid-1500s. But as far as grapes go in the Sonoran Desert, we once again can thank Kino, who probably planted a varietal known as the Listan Prieto, or the Criolla Chica, a long black grape popular both in Spain and the Canary Islands. Vintners up in Napa may owe the booming California wine industry all to Father Kino, although the later Jesuit missionary Junipero Serra is usually given credit for bringing grapevines to California. Guess where he got them from? Turns out, the Arizona wine industry is older than that of Napa's. I wonder if Robert Mondavi ever considered opening a winery in Tucson. As it turns out, there's been a long tradition of growing grapes and making wine in the Sonoran Desert particularly in Baja California. Over in Arizona, Jesus and his team have also made headway in reviving these desert grapes in their project at the Heritage Mission Garden in Tucson.
0: The wine that I encountered in Baja California and recently I found found two varieties, but one is a, a more fruity wine. Um, they call vino generoso, which is this, this wine that is homemade and it probably resembles a porto uh, in terms of the flavor. And that's more of the sweet one. But then they also make a drier wine, also a red, that is a little stronger and much drier. Very, very good. And the amazing thing is these both wines, when you really look at them, they're neither red or white or pink or rosés they are almost orange. They are amber. They have an amber color to it. And when we did our first wines here at the Mission Garden, this is the second year that a friend of us ventured into experimenting with making uh, some wine from our grapes here at the Mission Garden, to my surprise, as soon as I saw the, the wine up against the glass, it was that amber color. Very cool.
2: So by the time of Pfefferkorn in the 1750s, The Sonoran Desert hosted a wide variety of European plants, not to mention the chicken, pigs, and cattle which roamed the ranches and missions of the Pimeria Alta. But a few short years of Spanish rule couldn't rival one of the oldest culinary and agricultural traditions in North America. And the longer the Jesuits stayed, the more they realized the variety and quality of food the seemingly empty desert could offer, something the Piemans had figured out Thousands of years ago. The feast is supported by Zip Schedules online employee scheduling software. Employee shift scheduling can be time consuming for any business manager. Put aside the spreadsheets and create your next work schedule in minutes. With Zip Schedules, you can automatically communicate schedules to your employees. And Zip Schedule's cool mobile app lets your employees check and update their schedules from anywhere. Zips
1: tonight on NBC. Well, everyone in the cardiac surgical department, please raise your hands. Thank you. You're all fired.
2: Based on an inspiring true story.
1: Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated.
0: One doctor will break every rule.
1: Just tell me what you need, what your patients need.
0: To inspire.
1: A revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors. Again. From the network that brings you This Is Us. New Amsterdam. Tonight on NBC.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light.
1: Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories. Because it tastes so good.
2: Schedules makes scheduling effortless. For a free trial, visit ZipSchedules.com slash The Feast. Or use the promo code FEAST17 at ZipSchedules.com when you sign up. So let's get back to Father Pfeffercorn sitting in that jail cell in Spain in the 1760s. Even though the Spaniards had settled the region over 100 years ago, few people in Europe knew about the Southwest or the Sonoran Desert. After all, it was only one small part of New Spain. Few reports trickled back about the people, animals, and particularly the food that one could find there. The crown, for its part, was interested in gold or in silver, even chocolate— The Pimeria Alta could offer little of any of these, and so had remained largely under the radar. Father Kino had kept numerous journals and had written letters describing the area during his lifetime, but these hadn't been widely published even after his death. So Feffercorn decided to make good use of his time in prison, writing what would eventually become a two-volume book dedicated to the region and people with whom he had spent the last ten-odd years, called, straightforwardly enough, Sonora, a description of the province. Now remember, this was the man who thought it vital to bring parsley and rosemary with him on his travels. So maybe it's not so surprising that Pfeffercorn dedicated an entire chapter to the food of Sonora in his book. Corn, or maize, the crop at the heart of so many American culinary cultures— had been among the first plants brought back to Europe as part of the so-called Columbian Exchange, maybe as early as 1498. How quickly corn became a staple food in Europe is a little hard to figure out. Some eagle-eyed travelers spotted corn growing in Spain and Italy by the mid-16th century. But it's clear from records that European farmers appreciated the arrival of the durable crop, one seemingly less prone to failure than European wheat and more tolerant to drought an apparent miracle solution to a continent still plagued by regular famines. Many products, once made traditionally with wheat, millet, or sorghum, were now made exclusively with corn, like, for example, Italian polenta. But unfortunately, Europe hadn't clued in. Sure, corn grew well in the fields of Italy and Spain, but worries about crops failing were soon replaced by complaints by corn eaters of weakness, hair loss, Lesions, even madness. People in Italy refer to the mysterious problem as pellagra, or sour skin. But it wouldn't be until the 20th century that someone figured out the reason behind what was happening. See, it wasn't just that corn was some miracle crop. It was what the locals in the Americas had done to the corn, or even what they ate with the corn, that was the real solution. You see, corn is naturally full of something called niacin, also known as vitamin B3. But in its natural state, it's locked away in the heart of the corn kernel. And without doing some serious work, our body can't digest it. Here was the issue. Let's say you were a peasant hanging out in 17th or 18th century Italy. Most of your diet's going to come from some form of grain, usually a bread or a porridge, maybe with some vegetables or meat on top. Now, before the arrival of corn, when you were eating oats, wheat flour, maybe millet or sorghum, you were probably getting enough niacin. But when Italy changed its wheat fields to cornfields, all of a sudden, your access to niacin dried up. See, what the conquistadors and European Jesuits had failed to pay attention to when they first took corn back to Europe was how it was prepared— No one apparently realized the important process of what is known as nixtamalization, where ripe corn kernels are soaked and then cooked in lime or wood ash. That process unlocks the hidden niacin lurking inside the corn kernel, giving people access to this vital nutrient. Niacin in oats or wheat, for example, is much more accessible. Your body can digest it when wheat is turned into bread or porridge, or pretty much any way you cook it. Not so with corn. Unless nixtamalization happens, you can eat as much corn as you want. Your body's not going to get the vitamin it needs. And it would be another 300 years after pfeffercorn before someone finally linked this vitamin deficiency to non-nixtamalized corn. What's amazing is that pfeffercorn actually witnessed the peemans apply this process of nixtamalization to their corn, unlocking its vital nutrients he records it in his book without realizing he was describing the very solution to europe's nutritional problems as he says the common food of sonora is maize it is prepared and eaten in various ways the simplest preparation is to boil the maize in water until the kernels burst and become soft the sonorans eat this insipid dish called pozole without further ado now what's pozole but another word for hominy which is simply corn that's gone through nixtamalization. Pfeffercorn was literally staring right at the answer to hundreds of years of European nutritional deficiencies, and had no idea. Now, to be fair to Pfeffercorn, he didn't dismiss all local knowledge. He marveled at some of the new foods that the desert provided, like the edible pods of the mesquite tree, known as pechitas. Called the candy bar of the desert, they could be picked, dried, and pulverized into a thick, naturally sweet porridge. Even the spiny cactuses were a source of food. The organ pipe and Sawara produced sweet fruit, known as pitaya or prickly pears, and were frequent fillings for tortillas and tamales. And, of course, there were the chilies. Hundreds and hundreds of chilies. Even one of the local Jesuit missions had taken its name from a variety. tumacacari a name which means, place where the wild chilies are gathered. And in this part of Sonora, the wild chili was the chiltepin, also known as the bird's-eye chili, named for its size, about the size of a pea. But don't let its smallness fool you, it's among the hottest in the world, reaching between 50,000 and 100,000 on the Scoville scale making them even hotter than their distant cousins, the habanero. And by the 1750s, the Spanish had already developed a healthy appetite for the local chili, cooking or pickling everyone they could get their hands on. This also meant a healthy love of hot sauce. Using local recipes, hot sauce was soon being added to every dish in Spanish Sonora, from broiled fish to baked eggs. Now remember... Peppercorn came from Germany, not always known for its spicy cuisine. Arriving in the hot sauce crazy Sonoran desert, his first experience with the stuff, well, wasn't an immediate success. As he says, the constant use of hot sauce is at first an unbelievable hardship for the European. He must either be content with dry bread or burn his tongue and gums as I did. After the first mouthful, the tears started to come. I could not say a word, and believed I had hellfire in my mouth. Apparently, Fabricorn powered through the experience, as he goes on to say, However, one becomes accustomed to it after frequent, bold victories, so that with time, the dish becomes tolerable. And finally, very agreeable. But beyond corn and hot sauce, sometimes Pima and European knowledge blended to create entirely new foods and drinks. Agave, for example was a versatile plant for the Piemens. Its long, pale green leaves could provide the basis of a sturdy rope, while its fleshy inner heart could be roasted, and of course fermented, to make a kind of wine. And you can always trust in alcohol to help a little culinary fusion get going. While mezcal wine, simply the fermented juice of the agave, had been a local beverage for generations... It had only been with the arrival of the Spanish, with their technology and knowledge of distillation, that provided the key to making the liquor of tequila and mezcal. Heffercorn was maybe among the first to try this new supercharged agave liquor, which according to him, strengthens the stomach, stimulates the appetite, and is very good for digestion. I had these spirits to thank for the restoration of my health. An honest Spaniard advised me to take a small amount of mezcal spirits every day, one hour before the noon and evening meals. I heated him, and my health was completely restored in a short time. Yeah, I'm pretty sure two shots of mezcal will help anyone feel better. But that fermented agave juice, a drink that's been around for over 2,000 years, didn't just disappear. Variations can be found throughout Mexico, often known as pulque, or aquamiel, literally honey water, an ingredient often added to the drink. And it's been making a bit of a comeback recently. Younger crowds have started showing up in Mexico City's pulquerias. The ancient beverage has suddenly gone trendy. But agave was just one plant in the indigenous culinary repertoire. There was also mesquite, whose pods could be used to make flour. And of course, the Sonoran Desert has its own fruits and vegetables— whether it was the cactus buds of the cholla or the fruit of the organ pipe or saguaro cactus. Although wheat and other European plants had a firm foothold in the culinary culture of Sonora and Arizona, these native desert plants are highly nutritious. Mesquite, for example, is a true superfood, with high levels of protein and complex carbohydrates. And many groups and organizations, like the Mission Garden and the Sonoran Desert Museum, hold classes on how to find, harvest, and cook these native plants, like the buds of the spiny choya cactus, the pads of the cactus, and of course, the cactus fruit, also known as the prickly pear.
1: Well, something that I think um, is interesting that has more to do with nutrition, and that is of the, the Choya buds, that a lot of people don't um, would be surprised probably to learn this, is that they're very, very high in calcium. In fact, a lot of desert foods are high in calcium, uh, I think that's probably because our soils have a lot of calcium in them. So people here did not have almonds, they did not have milk. They did not have the traditional sources that we think of as being um, you know, sources for calcium, but they their, their desert foods all had were, were mm. higher in calcium than most of our foods.
2: That's Sonia Norman again. But it's not just the nutrition that makes these plants attractive to modern farmers. Throughout the Sonoran Desert, where water rights are still very much a hot-button issue, these plants, like the mesquite tree or cholla cactus, can survive with very little water. Even the fruit trees and other plants introduced by the Jesuits like Father Kino, may hold some solutions to water conservation issues. And it makes sense when you think about it. After all, southern Spain and many parts of the Mediterranean, where fruit trees like oranges, apricots, and limes are found are arid, almost dry climates, similar in ways to the Sonoran Desert. Jesus Garcia explains it a bit more.
0: These trees, so-called Mediterranean trees, are very well adapted to the Mediterranean climate. So, having said that, you can get an idea what that means. So, these are trees that, historically, they would do well without artificial irrigation. If you go to southern Spain and northern Africa, there are places where you find these trees growing naturally, just with the natural rain of the Mediterranean region. At the same time, we can say that these trees are arid adapted. They are adapted to those arid conditions of the Mediterranean. Now, think about Tucson now. We get temperatures of 110 degrees. We have droughts the last two months with no rain whatsoever. Humidity is zero. But if there is enough moisture the underground to keep these trees alive, they thrive. Very similar to the Middle East. And then, in, and then if we have a good rainy season and also if we, you know, do appropriate irrigation systems, then they will produce every year. If if there is a bad year that there's not enough rain for them to survive, they will not die. They may not produce fruit, but they will stay alive. So that's the case we're doing at the Mission Garden, for instance. We have we've had bumper crops every year because we're just giving them, and we are carefully learning about what is the right amount of water, so not overwater them, but not necessarily underwater them, so we can have a decent crop and enjoy the, the, the flavors of it. And we have trees like quinces and pomegranates and some figs. They can have water in the roots all year long, and you cannot kill them. So this is, it's like day palms. It's like palms. It's like day palms their roots can be sitting in water meaning either on the surface or underwater underground and they will thrive even though outside the outside environment can be 120 degrees Fahrenheit
2: the mission garden and the classes at the sonoran desert museum are just a few of the projects going on to investigate preserve and revive elements of both european and indigenous heritage foodways in the sonoran desert Nephi Craig, who is half Apache and half Navajo, works as the executive chef at Arizona's Sunrise Park Resort. He has founded the Native American Culinary Association, a cooperative to preserve indigenous culinary knowledge about the Sonoran Desert region and the greater southwest, from strategically farming native crops like corn, beans, and squash, to the harvest of wild foods such as mesquite pods or the Choya cactus. Recently, the Tohono Autumn community has started the Native Foodways magazine, dedicated to reviving not only the cultivation and harvest of native plants, but also the culinary foodways of their ancestors. And in communities like these, where type 2 diabetes can affect upwards of 30% of the population, a return to historic foodways may be a life-saving move. And the revitalization of native Sonoran plants can go all the way back to the seeds in some cases. Gary Nabhan helped found the nonprofit Native Seeds Search in 1983, a program dedicated to finding, protecting, and preserving the seeds of the Southwest, with the aim of reviving crop diversity throughout the southwestern U.S. and northwestern Mexico. And people seem to be finding ways of reviving these heritage seeds and plants all the time. Don Guerra opened Barrio Bread in Tucson in 2009. And at the time, it was one of the few bakeries to focus on using heirloom white Sonoran wheat in its bread. The same wheat introduced by Father Kino and the Jesuits back in the 1700s. Back in the 1970s, Nobel Prize winner and plant breeder Norman Borlaug tried to revive the wheat, based on its reputation as being drought and rust-resistant. Now, it's taken more than 50 years, but farmers throughout the Southwest may be starting to realize the benefits of this heirloom variety, which requires little to no irrigation. And the bakers at Barrio Bread continue to feature Sonoran wheat in their heritage loaves, each one signed with a saguaro stencil just to emphasize the point. All these programs, restaurants, bakeries, and initiatives – plus many more, have earned Tucson the honor of being the first U.S. city to be named a capital of gastronomy by UNESCO. But of course, it's not just the city, but the entire Sonoran Desert that has contributed to these ancient and modern foodways. Although state and national borders may now cut through it, as Jesus Garcia and many others see it, the Sonoran Desert is a community united by these plants, and particularly by their food
0: much of it is a personal uh, experience for me i i think i'm intricate connected into this project not just uh, for my fascination to these trees and the history of the region but a lot of it it really is a personal connection to this project overall because i was born and raised in magdalena sonora mexico which is about one hour south of the border and this region is being connected for a long time. Um, it's actually quite interesting the way things are going on right now. Uh, the border issues, uh, the current politics and uh, divisions of uh, you know ethnic and geographic uh, patterns that we have at the border. Yet, this area is being connected for a long, long time because it is one region. When you, when you consider this region, uh, whether you're looking at from the natural point of view, geographic, historical uh, point of view, there's more connection to Mexico than anywhere in the United States.
2: As a capital city of gastronomy, Tucson reflects both a citywide and regional integration of food traditions from the numerous cultures and peoples that have lived in the Sonoran Desert for the last 10,000 years. Whether it's the nutritional superfoods of the wild mesquite or cactus, the sustainability of the ancient agricultural power tree of corns, beans, and squash, or even the arid adapted fruit trees brought by 17th and 18th century European Jesuits, here you can find new applications and revitalizations from every page of Sonoran culinary history. Because, in the end, there is no one cuisine of the Sonoran desert, it's fundamentally layered. Different food traditions piling on top of each other for thousands of years. This is a region that has been home to the Hohokam, the O'odham, to Apaches, to Spanish, to Germans, to Italians, to Mexicans, to Arizonans. And despite what a map might say, at its heart, Sonoran foodways don't represent one culture, community, or even country, but fundamentally reflect ongoing inclusion and diversity. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Technical direction and hot sauce curation by Mike Port, who also provided many of the great photos of Southern Arizona for this episode. Make sure to check them out at our website at www.thefeastpodcast.org. And there are so many people to thank for their help with this episode. Jesus Garcia, along with Sonia Norman and Cat Rumbly at the Arizona Sonoran Desert Museum. And if you find yourself in southern Arizona, I highly recommend checking out the museum along with the Mission Garden, the new home of the Kino Heritage Fruit Trees Project. They're both located in Tucson and are always holding great events and festivals about the foodways of the Sonoran Desert. The Mission Garden is open to the public on weekends, but I suggest calling or emailing in advance. Find out more at their website, which we'll include a link to in the show notes. We'll also include information on the various classes that Jesus, Sonia, and the Desert Museum team run on local horticulture and cultivars. If you're in the area, you can even stop by the Desert Museum to take part in the choya Bud Harvest in early April. And there are more culinary events going on in Tucson than I can even name, including an upcoming agave festival that'll feature samples of tequila and mezcal, along with demonstrations of other uses of the century plant. There's also an annual pomegranate festival where you can taste up to 10 different varieties of the fruit, all grown in the Sonoran Desert. You can find links to these all on our website. The show notes from the episode are also full of great information, pictures, and books about Sonoran foodways, such as information about the Native Seed Search Project, as well as great places in Tucson to try some food. Barrio bread is an obvious example, but if you're in the area check out Hamilton's Distillery, where their mesquite-smoked whiskey is legendary around town. If you have a chance, don't forget about our listener survey. It'll be up for all of the month of March. And if you enjoy the feast, why not consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please consider becoming a contributing member on Patreon. We depend on you, our listeners, to keep us up and running. Find out more about the perks of being a member at our website at www.thefeastpodcast.org. That's it for us this week. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more great stories of meals that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast.
1: Well, everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands. Thank you. You're all fired.
2: Based on an inspiring true story.
1: Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated.
2: One
0: doctor
1: will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors. Again.
0: From the network that brings you This Is Us. New Amsterdam. Tonight on NBC.